We will be in Acts 6. There we go. There we will be in Acts 6. Uh, verse 8, if you want to turn there. We've got the Black Pew Bible. That's page 914. Again, that's Acts 6 as we continue on with our series through the entire book. Today is going to be text-heavy. I hope you like the Bible. God is there. And that's why we teach it. But there's going to be a lot of Bible today, and you can even do some extra reading at home. But we'll be in Acts 6, and we'll get started in verse 8. Well, let's begin by praying together. God, we do lift up your name because you will reign forever. That's good news. Ah, that lands with a lot of relief and a lot of hope on my heart this morning, God. Thank You. Thank You for Your promises in the Scripture to reign forever. We even see it in the text today, God. Jesus at Your very throne, alive and well, reigning over sin and Satan, and we celebrate that. Help us now, God, to learn to submit ourselves to Your Scripture as taught by Your Spirit through the preaching of Your Word. Help us to be changed by it. I pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you're thawing out. This entire South has been under a deep freeze this week. And I also hope you got to romp in the snow a little bit, found some kids and just went for it because it doesn't come around much. Uh, today's theme, if you're, if you're into taking notes, that's cool. Here's the big idea. The big idea of today's text is that God and Christ will magnify Himself in suffering. And He'll even advance this church through suffering. It's pretty simple. God will make Himself look bigger. He'll magnify Christ through suffering and He can advance the church through that. And I have a testimony from this week that verifies such things. So I was, I was playing out in the snow. It was Wednesday. And uh, the, the snow was here and we woke up and it was still really cold. 17 degrees. And so I googled and I, I googled something to the effect of how cold does it get before you shouldn't sled. Something like that. Because uh, we really wanted to go sledding. And uh, what came up was nothing about temperature but a bunch of safety advice about sledding. That was kind of funny. I'll, I'll read it for you. It came up on some, some website. The first tip was always wear a helmet. <laughs> I thought that one was a little bit too sheltering. Even as a homeschool dad, it was a little too sheltering for me. Um, the next one was avoid all hills and uh, avoid a hill that jumps. You know, with a, with a ramp. And I thought, well, that's lame. Um, next was avoid trees. And finally it said, don't sled down hills with water at the bottom. You know, ponds or creeks. And I thought, this is common sense stuff. You know, I'm, so I chuck it. And uh, we go outside and we start scoping the landscape with my kid. And you got to understand that my, my place has some killer hit hills. I mean, some really good sledding hills. But the problem is, is they're all in the woods. And woods have trees. <laughs> and my particular hills end in a creek. <laughs> and so and there's no way I'm wearing a helmet. So I get out there and I think, okay, this is all wrong, right? This is, this is not a good start. But even still, we're determined to have an adventure. Um, so we head to uh, the hill and um, our 
our landscaping fence, a silt fence, uh, is, is torn down. It's old, and so we removed it, and we put it in front of the creek. And so now we've got a net, right? And I'm thinking, all right, I've got a net to catch my kids at the bottom of this hill. Uh, and then I go through with a saw and start cutting out some little trees. And at the end of this, we've got a slope that Bodie Miller would even be proud of, right? And so we go to the top. And we're getting all ready. And so I've got an 11-year-old in front, an 8-year-old behind him. And I'm on the back. And then I have this revelation, wrongly, that I'm too big for this. I'm too weighty. That my mass will create too much velocity. And this will be awful. So I decide... Wrongly, it would be better to replace myself with my five-year-old. <laughs> and so I hop off. I'm actually conscious during this, not intoxicated. And, but I grab my five-year-old and I put him in the back seat, which is the steering seat, right? That's how you steer the craft with your arms and your legs back here. And our sled isn't one with handles. It's just a, a three-seater that goes straight. That's all it does. So anyway, I'm caught up in the moment, and I think, okay, I'm going to give him a shove. And I, it was a dandy. <laughs> I got my shoulder into it, and they took off Mach 9 down this hill. And my first thought was, my God, I've shoved them too hard. And my second thought is, there's no way I can steer this. And so the story turns into something that turned in, you know, a, a comical fun time into something really serious. According to the, this website, more collisions with injuries occur when sledding than it does from snowboarding and skiing, right? And so, thankfully my wife's not out there. But I'm sitting there watching the only audience to these kids flying down the hill and they're headed straight for this big tree. And, it, you know, I'm like, this is going to be awful. So at the last moment, I see my front two sons, 11 and 8, nobly bail, right? I've taught them. I've taught them that much. The problem is that leaves five-year-old Sammy in a twisted state. And I kid you not, he's pinned under there, and they're flying down this hill, and his leg goes perpendicular to the sled. And here comes the tree. And he smacks it. I mean, it's, it's, it's Super Bowl Sunday, right? So, for football fans, this looked like Marcus Lattimore stuff. His leg dangles, and I'm shocked. I, I've seen enough, you know, I've had enough kids to think, he's hurt badly. And so I run down the hill, and he's screaming, screaming, and just a terror kind of screaming. I'm, I'm praying, I'm like, oh, God save his leg and I scoop in him I'm running up and I'm carrying him and one leg is normal feeling while he's screaming and the other one is dangly feeling while I'm going up the hill and so I shoot into the house I yell at my wife sorry I yell at her he's hurt I think he's hurt badly and turn your head away while you're calling 911 because I'm going to take his pants off. I'm thinking it's going to be twisted or there's going to be bone sticking out. And in the moment, I'm praying, God, come to me, save his leg. And I notice, I kid you not, my son stops crying. And I'm thinking, he's numb now or he's in shock or something. And I rip off his four layers of pants. And there's not even a bruise this was a miracle. Something happened up that hill. And I'm not someone who sees a miracle around every bush, right? But this week, God came to me 
because this leg was floppy dangly at the bottom of the hill. By the time I got up at the top of the hill, he was fine. Praise God. He saved his leg. If that's hard for you to believe, you're going to have problems with the Bible, right? If that seems too out of this world, that God could come in the midst of suffering and make Himself look present and good and powerful, then Christianity is beyond you. And I'll tell you how it advances the church because when I tell this story, hopefully you know I'm not crazy and a liar, and you believe this story of God being present and in a crazy way that only I witnessed, and Sammy, heal my kid's leg. And that will increase your faith. It's increased my faith, right? And that's what the story today in the text is about. That's the big point. Through suffering, God has the opportunity to magnify Himself. And this will advance the church. So let's look here at this story. It's a fantastic story. So it deserves a fantastic opening illustration. But uh, here's the first point. We're going to start in... uh, Acts 6, verses 8 through 15. The synagogue raid, meaning the synagogue raids Stephen. Here's a big picture. Recall at the start of the book, Jesus, his last words to his people here on earth were, You're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem representing the Jewish people, um, Samaria, he said also, which were kind of half, half Jews, half not Jews. The ends of the earth representing all the Gentile Jesus had promised that the gospel would go forth in that way. At this point in the story, it's still stuck in Jerusalem, so to speak. And that's where we pick it up. Let's jump in at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, that's probably some descendants from, from freed slaves, and of the Cyrenians, the North African people, and of the Alexandrians from Egypt, and of those from Sicily and from Asia, that's Turkey, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen. So here's the scene. Stephen, who's going to be our hero of the story here, is doing mighty work. He's healing the sick. And we heard of Stephen earlier last week. He was one of the guys uh, who was a Greek-speaking Jew who was serving to be... Uh, one of the early, perhaps, deacons, one of the servants in the church who was helping out the poor, helping out the widows. He's marked as a man of grace and a man of power, full of the Spirit, stacked high, full of wisdom. We know he was sharing Christ while he was healing the sick because people started arguing with him. So it could have gone something like this. Picture Stephen in a courtyard, right? And he's, he's speaking about Jesus. He knows Christ personally and he's testifying, maybe saying, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, you guys got to know that he's the Son of God, saying these types of things. And so there's a crowd here, and one of the um, people in the crowd maybe is an old, older man, and he's been uh, crippled all of his life. And everybody knows the guy, and he's gathered around, and they're all listening. And, and as he's speaking about Jesus being God, people from the synagogue hear it, and they fire back, and they say, Blasphemy! Wait a minute, Stephen, that's blasphemy! Jesus of Nazareth! He's a traitor, man. He's not God. God can't be man. You're mixed up. That's blasphemy. I could just see Stephen as they're contradicting him. He's easing over here towards this sick guy. And at one point during these charges against him, he just kneels down. And he's like, 
Hang on a minute. And he touches the guy's knee. And this guy who's been sick and he's never walked before, he, he stands up and he's like a new foul, right? He can barely stand, but all of a sudden it's apparent that the touch of Stephen has healed this guy. And Stephen says something like, if Jesus of Nazareth is not God, explain this. Right? He's using the miracles, the healings, to testify to the greatness of God. And ends the debate, right? It stops the debate. And remember, Jesus promised in Luke 21 that He would grant them a winsome wisdom that could not be challenged. And we see this here in verse 10. But they, the people from the synagogues, could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which He was speaking. So what do His opponents do? Well, it's an old debate trick. If you can't win the argument, you undermine the opponent, right? And so imagine these guys who've just been bested in this argument about Jesus kind of leaving the courtyard and it's people coming in saying, hey, what happened over there? Sounds like someone, I don't know what happened. And I'll tell you what, Stephen is bad-mouthing Moses. <gasps> what? Yeah, he's saying all kinds of crazy things about Moses and the law. That's who Stephen is. He stirs up people to come up against Stephen. Verse 12, So they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. That's Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. They seized him. I don't know if any of you have ever been seized. We had a men's fellowship not too long ago where we did some seizing. It hurts. It hurts if you've ever had that. This is the beginning of the persecution and the suffering of the church. He was brought in. They hauled him in before the legal court. And like the Apostle Paul and like Jesus before him, Stephen now finds himself between the highest ruling body in the land. He's standing before him. Read him verse 13 and 14. Here's the charge, the false charge that was brought against Stephen. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. Talking about the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and He will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So about these false charges. First, this business about Jesus claiming to destroy the temple. You might remember that's the very same false accusations that were brought up at the trial of Jesus Himself in Mark 14. Uh, The problem is Jesus never said that. Jesus said, if you destroy Me talking about His body, that temple, I'll raise it up in three days. And He also predicted that Jerusalem would be seized and the temple would come down. But He never said, I'm going to destroy this temple. It's a false charge. Second, Jesus didn't come, as these accusers say, to mess up the law of Moses. He came to fulfill it. It was fulfilled in Him. So all of these uh, charges are completely bogus here. And that's another part of the persecution. You may have experienced this yourself. Because of your stand for Christ, people saying things that just aren't true about you. As you read through this text, you can notice a few points of connection between Stephen and Christ Himself. He's set up uh, to reflect Christ. Both did signs and wonders. Both were opposed by Jewish leaders. Both were seized. Both had false witnesses brought against them. Both argued from Scripture. Both were willing to severely suffer for the ultimate 
glory of God. With so many similarities between Jesus and Stephen, you're supposed to have kind of an aha moment and realize that Stephen is, in fact, united to Jesus. He's carrying on the very work of Christ because they are united in spirit. And Paul will go on to develop that theme later. Um, He's also picking up here on a general principle that Jesus spoke of. We have this quote uh, from John 15, for instance. Something that Jesus said that Stephen is living out. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, said Jesus, they will also persecute you. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Stephen's living this out. A couple of blurbs here about what Jesus said. First, Jesus said, we, we know from this, the way he said this, that he saw your suffering coming. Let that comfort you. Jesus saw your suffering coming. Indeed, it's a part of His plan. Take comfort that your redemption, your sanctification, your eternal joy, your maturation spiritually is not accidentally invaded by suffering, but it is designed intentionally to be intensified by suffering. Your joy is intensified by suffering. Another thing Jesus said here, a servant's not greater than his master. Your master was innocent and bruised. Well, kind of, what do you expect? This is kind of what Jesus was saying. But He was saying more than that. He was saying, if your master was bruised and you are bruised, see the connection between us. Know that it's a family trait to suffer. Jesus suffered we shall suffer too. It's, it's a DNA thing. It's in who we are as Christians. And that should comfort you because in a way it assures you that you belong to God and His family. Finally, people persecute disciples according to Jesus because persecutors don't know God. And that's also comforting. I don't know if your parents ever told you when you were growing up, if somebody made fun of you, I mean, I never got made fun of, of course, but just hypothetically, if, if, if your mom stopped, if your mom said, you know why they make fun of you, little Travis? You know why they make fun of you? It's because they're jealous or they're insecure, right? Why does that comforting when the parent says that? It's comforting because you realize the problem is not you. The problem is somebody else needs to change, right? When we suffer, especially persecution like this, we can be over overwhelmed with guilt. Guilt. Oh man, why is this happening? What did I do wrong? Oftentimes the problem is not you. The problem is someone else has to spiritually change. And that's hopeful because as we see in the story, God is in the business of changing people for His glory. So there we have the synagogue raid. Second point here if you're taking an outline. Let's look now at the claim Stephen made. The claim Stephen made, this is the bulk of the text here. Chapter 7, 1 through 53. Now, you'll notice if you're astute how in the middle of this story, the author dumps a big 
sermon, a big speech. And uh, that's just the way it is. We're going to plow right through it. You may be thinking, oh, wow, great story. Just got interrupted with this huge speech. My kids will watch cartoons. And uh, sometimes in, even in uh, young kids' cartoons, they'll stop for songs. And sometimes they're lovey-dovey songs, right? Between the hero and the heroine. They're, they sing a love song together. And my kids always take a break and go to the bathroom because they don't want to see this lovey stuff. But don't do that in the text. Just because the story stops, God has a lot for us here in this speech. And the main point of His speech is God is faithful, it's you who are not. Remember what Stephen's being accused of. He's being accused of being a traitor, a blasphemer, an unfaithful Jew. So the point of his sermon speech here is God is faithful, it's you who are not. Here's a few points about his long sermon here. You can read the whole thing later if you want. I'm not going to read it all now, but I will make a few points. First one is from verses 2 through 8. God is faithful and worthy of worship. That's the point of the first section of his sermon here. God is faithful and worthy of worship. Uh, Beginning with Abraham, and that would be a huge attention grabber because of who he was to the Jews, Stephen brings up Abraham to show how God's promise aligns with his commitment to his people. And then what happened with Abraham? God called him and agreed to take him uh, and give him a land and bless him and bless his family. A blessing that ultimately uh, is fulfilled in Christ. But initially here he's talking about this land gift. In verse 3, you'll read of chapter 7, Yet, even though God called him, God gave him no inheritance in the land, not even a foot slip, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So when Abe was led to Canaan, he just didn't take it over, right? He, God demanded faith from Abraham, and he had to wait. And he formed this covenantal relationship with him. As verse 6 and 7 said, God's people were to be enslaved, but God would faithfully rescue them. Read verse 6 and 7. His offsprings would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they will serve and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. So Stephen lays the foundation of his defense speech, so to speak. He's saying, you call me a traitor to God, but I say the God of Abraham is faithful and worthy of worship. Doesn't sound like he's betraying God there, right? He he, he claims the God of Abraham is faithful and worthy of worship. Second point he makes, 9-16. through His point is people reject God's chosen one. People will reject God's chosen one. He brings up the story of Joseph here. Again, recall what Stephen is being accused of. He's being accused of rejecting the true God. So he breaks out the Joseph story as as if to say, though I don't reject God, I do know some people who do reject God's chosen one. And he tells the story of Joseph. Read verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions that gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Here's a real bunch of functional blasphemers. It's the eleven sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, the patriarchs. They all turned against Joseph, who was God's chosen one here. Uh, They rejected him, and that's a big theme throughout this speech. Um, and the rich point that Stephen is making here, God blessed the one who was rejected. And just as Joseph was rejected, so too would Jesus be rejected. And even now, Jesus' follower, Stephen, is being rejected. 
Verses 17 through 43 of his speech, he makes the point rejection does not negate God's rescue. Rejection by God's people doesn't necessarily negate God's rescue. Now it's on to the story of Moses. Remember Moses, what would you think if you lived Moses' story? If his biography was your autobiography? Remember what your life would have been like? You grew up in the king's palace, which means you had every educational advantage. No toy was ever denied from you. You had the run of the roost. You were the favorite. You You were privileged. You grew up with all that. But All the while, you knew as you were growing up that something wasn't right in the kingdom because there was this huge mass, million of people who were enslaved and being uh, treated awfully. Remember, there was a mass genocide among the infants going on with the Hebrew people. And at some point, Moses learns that he's actually a Hebrew, even though he's living in this posh Egyptian lifestyle, he finds out. So imagine the turmoil you would have when you hear uh, on some days the screaming of the mothers because their babies are being ripped from their hand and they're being exposed, was the word the Bible used, so that they would die. This is awful tension Moses had to be living with. And uh, we, we comes to a point in his life that we see in... in uh, Verse 23 here, he he turns 40. He hits this middle age and he starts probably thinking about issues of purpose and where he stands in life. And Stephen says in his speech here, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So if you were Moses at that point, you you go slumming, you go to the ghettos, you go to the poor side of town, the, the, the slave places and he's trying to connect with his family and he's there and suppose you're walking one day and you're kind of sneaking around because after all you are the prince and this is the ghetto and and then you hear a ruckus and and maybe a work shed and Moses walks in there and he checks it out and what he sees is a dehydrated, debilitated slave laborer, a Hebrew, just being beaten by a taskmaster, an Egyptian taskmaster. And, and just imagine how he would feel. And at, at that moment, he may have thought something like, I can't save all of these people, but I can save one. And so he acts. He jumps. And there's a scuffle between Moses and the taskmaster. And we don't know the details, but we know it gets bloody. And the Egyptian taskmaster dies. And Moses thinks, well... At least my, my people will know that I, the prince, stand for them, right? Verse 25, He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by His hand. But they did not understand. People were scared of Moses now. And he was scared too. And so he fled Egypt. But note the point. God provided salvation, but the people against it. Later in the story, we see God Himself has not given up on saving the Jewish people through Moses. Because in verse 34, we read of God coming to Moses. This is what He says. I have surely seen the affliction of My people who are in Egypt and I have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. But even after God uses Moses, God's chosen Savior of Israel to remove His people from slavery we see that they still rebel against Him. Verse 35, very pointed text. Stephen speaking of Moses still, he said, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, 
Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of angel and who appeared to them in the bush. He was rejected. People stood up and said, Hey, who made you king over us? Moses? They answered, Well, God did. Hello. But they were rebelling against this. This man led them out, verse 36, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Stephen was telling this story in his defense. He was trying to make a couple points. First one is, though God's people have always rejected His chosen one, God still remains faithful. And secondly, Stephen's making the point, can you not see how Moses pointed forward to a greater Savior? Remember, Stephen's about talking about Jesus, right? He can make the connection between Moses and Jesus that the Jewish leaders, people who have him on trial, cannot make correctly. He said, you know, like Moses, Jesus was saved by Egypt from infanticide. And like Moses, God sent Jesus as both a ruler and a redeemer. Like Moses, Christ did signs and wonders. Like Moses, Christ was rejected by the Jews. That's the point of what he's saying. I also want you to note, in all three of these stories that Stephen brings up in his defense, God is using the suffering of His people to magnify Himself. Think about Abraham. What he had to go through. He left his home and country. He had to go through adult circumcision in that time. That was rough. His father died. But his suffering was God's saving. Right? For Joseph, he was robbed by his own brothers. Think about the emotional toil that had on him the rest of his life. He's tossed in a pit. Sold as a slave, thrown in jail, removed from his homeland. But his suffering was God's saving. Moses was driven to a foreign land, rejected by the very people he'd given his life for, almost starved while being banished to the desert. But his suffering was God's saving. And as Stephen will bring up at the end of his speech, there was another completely holy one who was persecuted, beaten, and killed on a cross. But his suffering was God's saving. And that's the main point that we're getting at here. Jesus bore all the guilt through his suffering and made the sacrificial suffering so that God would be magnified as the one both just and merciful. The one who could, through this mediator, now relate to all those who repented and cried out to Him as Savior. And we still invite everyone to do that, even today. See how Christ is magnified through His own suffering. So rejection does not negate God's rescue. final point that Stephen makes in his big sermon here, our faithful God is bigger than you think. That's the section 44 through 50. Our faithful God is bigger than you think. Remember, he's being accused of uh, misrepresenting God, speaking blasphemy, being a traitor to the faith. And his point is simply, well, wait a minute. God is bigger than you think here, guys. Uh, It's intended to demonstrate how God's glory and majesty is grander than you can even imagine. He mentions the tabernacle where God and His people in the wilderness and the temple built by Solomon. He mentions both of these points. And then he points out how these things are insufficient 
to best reveal God's glory. It doesn't knock them per se. Just saying they're not the most sufficient means to reveal God's glory at its finest. Verse 48. He relates, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses, talking about the tabernacle or the temple, made by hands, as the prophet says. He's talking about Isaiah in 66.1 there. Isaiah said, so he's quoting Isaiah, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. This is God talking. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? Stephen's point is you've got you're God in a nice little Ziploc bag. You've you got to let him out because he's much too big there. He's, he includes the temple, but he's beyond it. Includes the tabernacle, but he's much more than that. And then at the very end of his sermon here in verse 51, he, he starts moving towards application and he gets really personal, Stephen does, with his hearers. He gets really in your face. Read what he said. He turns now to the people who've called him in. And says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. It's a double whammy, right? He, he hits on the family, your ancestors, <clears throat> and you're doing the same. <clears throat> He's being very intentional here with his gospel conviction talk. Uh, saying the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Your people rejected Jesus and now you're rejecting God in Jesus as well. Uh, the language he's using is Old Testament language here. Stiff neck, it's as if your, your neck is so stiff that you can't even turn to see what's going on because your neck is, is too stiff. You can't even see the glory of God because your, your neck is stuck. Or your heart is uncircumcised. Any uncircumcised talk always referred to the Gentiles, the ungodly people. So he was talking really offensively in their own language to these leaders when he said this. Look in verse 52. Keeps going. <laughs> he is bold here. Which of your prophets, sorry, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Hear that? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Again, you line up perfectly with your ancestors who missed the boat, who were blasphemers. Hard words, but true here from Stephen's. Your father shot down the prophets and you too shot down the righteous one, Jesus Christ. That's the claim that Stephen made. Now let's see the price that Stephen paid. Finally here, chapter 7, verses 54 through 60, and then we'll spill into chapter 8 a little bit. Stephen's speech seems to be interrupted at this point. You can almost imagine if you're following the flow of the speech that now he's going to go on to an offer of repentance and grace in Jesus Christ. But it's stopped here in verse 54. Remember, it's a formal legal defense type of situation, but it turns into something black and nasty when the crowd starts to get uh, all up in arms. Um, verse 54 says, Now when they heard these things, the crowd, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Him. This, this word for enraged literally means psalm through in their heart. They were cut, their hearts were cut in two. The grinding of teeth, we see that imagery in the Old Testament when, in Job. Um, when Job is saying, God is so angry at me. God in His wrath is grinding His teeth at me. And that's what they were doing. In my mind, I 
picture the crowd beginning to swell, right? You've, you've been in a situation maybe when, when uh, mob violence is just simmering beneath the surface. People may be looking down, grabbing some weapons. People starting to sneak over the railing there. Uh, they're, they're getting to the point where they're going to bum rush Stephen here. But Stephen, at that point, when I may have ran, he does the most amazing thing. Verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. What did he see there? The glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so Stephen says, Look, behold! I see the heavens open. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is His ultimate defense, right? Look! I can see it! I can see Him right there! He's overwhelmed by the Spirit. He's given a glimpse of heaven and he sees the very glory of God and wrapped up all in that glory is Jesus Himself. He's sharing in the majesty. This right hand of God stuff means shared rule. That's what Jesus is doing here. But Jesus, notice, is not merely lounging. He's standing. Standing in vindication of His messianic identity. Standing in judgment over Israel, falsely accusing. And standing to defend and to receive His little brother Stephen. Stephen may die this day, but the risen Jesus assures that He will not perish. Jesus stands in defense of His people. Through Stephen's suffering, God is saving. Even as Stephen testified to the glorified Christ, the spiritually dead are further blinded there by their own rage. And it's vital to note here the fact that the crowd doesn't see the glory of God on display. And yet, it's, it's there. It makes it no less real the fact that you don't notice that God is being magnified because He is. Sometimes He's magnifying Christ and we just don't see it. That's what's happening here. Everybody's enraged and so they react in their brutal blindness. Read 57. And they cried out loud with a voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at Him. And they cast Him out of the city. They stoned Him on down to 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, He called out, Lord Jesus, receive My Spirit. And then falling to His knees, praying and probably out of weakness, He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then when he said this, he fell asleep. That euphemism from he was killed. He was martyred here. And note how as Jesus' glory was revealed in a revelation of heaven, just like Jesus gave him a glimpse of His majesty, we also get a glimpse of the majesty of God in the final words of Stephen. In His dying words, He points us back to the cross when He says, forgive them. Forgive them. Forgiveness. He's living out the commands of Christ even as His enemies are persecuting Him. And that magnifies Jesus. Makes Him look so good and real and powerful. We see that through His suffering. And almost as a footnote, we're told in verse 58, 
that in order to better throw their jagged rocks, this mob did something. They took off their coats so they could throw better. And they stacked them over here at the feet of a young guy named Saul. And Saul approved of what was going on. And he was later used by God to actually partake in the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, going into their houses and dragging out the women and children, throwing them in prison. And when that happened, Jesus' promise that we read at the very first of Acts was fulfilled. The suffering here in Stephen's case actually led to the spread of the gospel to Judea, to Samaria, just as Jesus said it would. It's advancing the church. God uses suffering to magnify Christ and advance His church. What can we take away here? Here's three or four things. First, when you think about your life in reaction to this text, don't just let it roll over you like a nice story. Pause this week, today, with your kids. Talk about it with your spouse. Meditate on this. Your suffering leads to God's saving. I'm not talking about the foundation of your salvation, which is the sacrifice, the atonement of Christ. I'm talking about uh, the upholding of your salvation. Perseverance end of your salvation. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what's happening in the midst of your suffering. You're being prepared to meet Christ who suffered, right? You want to look like Him when you meet Him. You want Him to be identified with you. You're prepared, being prepared to meet Christ. And some quotes from Puritan pastors that surround this idea of your suffering leads to God's saving. Thomas Watson said, God takes away the world so that the heart may cleave to Him more sincerely. Right? That's what's going on in your suffering. Or, or like Richard Sipps, famous pastor, said, Poverty and affliction take away the fuel that feeds pride. You see how that humbles you, causes you to depend on Christ, and perseveres your faith. Which Samuel Rutherford said, When you're in the cellar of affliction, you will find the Lord's choicest wines. Meaning again that your affliction, your suffering, is a way to meet God. God is saving you. Finally, John Flavel says this, it is the great support and solace of the saints and all the distresses that befall them here that there is a wise spirit sitting in all the wheels of motion and governing the most eccentric creatures and their most pernicious designs to blessed and happy issues. Trust that God has a wonderful plan to refine you through these trials. Second thing to ponder... This sounds counterintuitive, sounds upside down, but it's true. The main focus of your suffering is Christ and His church. The main focus of your suffering is Christ and His church. One of the greatest, most dangerous lies that suffering speaks to you by Satan is that the chief focus of your pain is all about you, right? You see this in expressions when you think, Oh, why me, man? Why is this happening? Or, or I can't, I can't take this. 
anymore? Or, or when will this stop happening to me? Notice how all of those are focused on yourself. But as we noted in today's text, your suffering is ultimately all about God in Christ being magnified or the progress of the gospel. You know, well, I don't get this. Right? I don't get how my chronic back pain is magnifying Jesus in any way. I don't, uh, I'm pregnant, I'm hurting all the time, or I just had a baby. I don't see how this, you want to over-spiritualize this, Pastor. Well, you've got to real, realize, who do you run to? Who do you call out to in the midst of this pain? Stephen ran to Jesus. He called out to Jesus. And God met him there, and that makes God look sufficient. That magnifies Him, right? That's how your pain can do it. If God can fulfill His promises to you in the midst of your pain, don't you think that makes Him look wonderful? Or or not so long ago, I heard about a a family in Kurdistan where we do mission work. And uh, they became believers. And it was a drastic change in that society. They they lose their job and they're, they're isolated. They're out of the business community. What happened? How can that how can that progress the church? It seems like it's going against the church. This guy's being rejected. Well, I told this story to another friend of mine who's told it to another friend, and now there are people going to this area to further disciple this believer and others. All because of what happened to him and his persecution. Your pain, your persecution, your suffering can advance the church. So ask yourself, God, show me. I don't know how my back pain can magnify you, God, but show me. Show me how this can possibly advance the church. And finally, finally, God doesn't leave His people alone while they suffer. God does not leave His people alone while they suffer. Joseph was not alone in the pit. God was with His people in the wilderness and Christ stood tall over Stephen as he was being martyred. Dear brother and sister, I want to reassure you today that you are not alone as you tread through your trials. God is there with you. Even though you may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you. We'll let Peter have the last word here. First Peter 5.10 and then we'll pray. First Peter 5.10 Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself personally restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. First Peter 5.10 Let's pray. God, we've all suffered for a little while and I pray, God, that Christ would come in Himself. Restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, establish us. Because we all go through pain and suffering. Some of it is direct persecution for the gospeling. Others of it is the indirect effects of sin and the devil working in this world. Nonetheless, Help us to be people who see how Christ can be magnified in it and the church advanced. Help us in this endeavor, God. I plead with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're now going to take the Lord's Supper together, a meal that has everything to do with the suffering of Christ. When you eat it, you are reminded of how His body was bruised, how His blood was spilt 
The reason you eat it, the reason you eat it is because you're partaking of that suffering, right? We should not be surprised when we suffer here as followers of Jesus. We're eating His body. Eating the blood. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, I invite you to come to the table. Take a moment there and reflect on this. Then when you're ready, come to the tables we have set in the back and here forward. It is a family meal, so if you're not of the family of God, if you're not a Christian, if you're just a visitor here, we're so happy you're here. We just ask that you watch us, watch what we do. But for everyone else, I say come, remind yourself that you're participating in the suffering of Jesus and be thankful that He will meet you there in it.